Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Portfolio Perspective segment of Counting on Capital. Today, we're continuing speaking with CEOs of healthcare companies, and I'm interviewing Joshua Schultz, CEO of Cytel. Cytel is a software company dedicated to shaping the future of drug development and drug trials. We'll talk about Cytel's work in life sciences and what they're doing to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. As always, I'm your host, Shruti Rao, and this is Counting on Capital. Josh, you are the CEO of Cytel, a company dedicated to shaping the future of drug development. Tell us what that looks like in practice and how do you use different tools like statistics and software? Sure. So Cytel was founded around 30 years ago by some uh, eminent statisticians who are still uh, with us, uh, still working with, uh, with Cytel. They were pioneers in the area of adaptive designs, which are a, a more sophisticated way of designing clinical studies to um, uh, both get um, the answers you want, but do it in an efficient way. And we were, uh, we've been able to expand upon that initial vision over 30 years with um, software, with consulting. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, they made a quite a smart decision in, in retrospect, where in addition to, to designing the studies, they also support the execution of the studies, so actually delivering the studies. Uh, we've now built uh, what we think is the world's largest uh, biometrics services organization for the life science industry. And with the uh, investment from New Mountain Capital, we've gone beyond that even to focus on uh, a broader swath of life science research questions uh, beyond just phase one to three adaptive designs to include uh, value evidence, uh, the whole life cycle of research questions and the application of advanced analytics in a broader way. So Josh, walk me through this expansion you just mentioned. What does that really look like? And do you have an example of something that Cytel helped worked on that might be familiar to our listeners? Sure. So one of the um, uh, new and, and very interesting areas uh, in the clinical trial space is uh, the creation and uh, explosion, really, of real-world data assets that now exist. So 30 years ago, there were claims data, so insurance data, but it was very dirty and not really research-grade for a variety of reasons. But in the last 10 or so years, there's been a uh, large amount of electronic medical record data that as it's gotten digitized, we've been able to anonymize it and use it for research purposes. And when you have clinical data in an electronic medical record, there's all sorts of interesting research questions that either would have been prohibitively expensive or very difficult to answer using traditional clinical trial methods. So the application of real-world data, which is something that has been used in uh, the post-approval space for a long time to answer value evidence or payer sorts of questions, taking that data and applying it to uh, phase one to three trial situations is relatively novel. It requires both the data assets, which is something that, uh, as I mentioned, has been been uh, of becoming available, but more importantly, and what we've, what we're, where we think we can add value is around the analytics. What we, what I think people, it's a little bit like the human genome project. You know, once we decoded the human genome, people got rightly very excited. But when you really look at it hard, you realize we now have three billion base pairs, and now we need to spend the next twenty years analyzing those three billion base pairs to figure out what that means. The analytics became just as important as the data. I think we're at that same inflection point 
in the uh, clinical trial space where the application of real-world data, particularly to registrational research questions from phase one to three, requires not just the data, but also a whole new set of analytical tools that uh, at Cytel we happen to have um, a really good handle on and, and really great expertise to apply to. So let's just take a step back. How did you become interested in life sciences and the drug industry? Walk me through your path of becoming CEO of Cytel. So uh, I was an international relations and finance major. So it's a straight line from that to clinical trials, obviously. Uh, no, for, for me, it was an accident, uh, but a very fortuitous one. Um, I uh, was doing consulting like many folks coming out of Wharton, which is where I uh, did my undergrad and uh, uh, enjoyed it a lot. But then the internet came along and we started a company that happened to do patient recruitment for clinical trials. Although why I got into it was it was an internet company and that was seen to be enough back in 1998. Um, it got me into this industry and like I said, somewhat accidentally, but I really found it to be uh, an exceptional industry, right? You've got very bright people. You've got really big problems. You've got problems that matter. You know, if we actually develop new drugs more efficiently, et cetera, it, it helps people. And by the way, there's uh, really interesting business problems to be solved. And, and I've found the last 25 years um, to be uh, exceptionally interesting in this space because of the a huge amount of evolution that's happened, whether it's in the way that uh, CROs provide services to pharmaceutical industries, whether the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's the advent of things like real world data, whether it's the advent of various computing technologies that have taken a paper process and made it uh, a much more efficient, whether it's uh, the, the, the massive expansion to a global approach versus very much a US centered one. All these things have uh, were very compelling to me and kept me here despite not being a scientist and not really having any background in this space, but I uh, have kind of grown with the industry over the last, uh, like I said, 20, 25 years. All of the world's 30 largest pharmaceutical companies and the FDA use Cytel software. How do you create a product that becomes so widespread in its use when you have that level of success? And how does Cytel continue to push the envelope and innovate on its software? That's a great question. So uh, first off, I mean, as much as I would love to take credit for it, uh, the software is very much the brainchild of the two founders of Cytel, so Cyrus and Nitin. Uh, both of them are brilliant uh, statisticians who had a vision for what adaptive designs could do for our industry like, 30 years ago. And over the course of the last 30 years, what uh, they were able to do working with uh, brilliant folks at Cytel that they were able to hire, uh, and, and honestly, I think one of the things that were, was most successful about Cytel was that they were able to just attract and retain great, great folks. Uh, is that they were able to, uh, they had a vision, and more importantly, they were able to keep bringing out new product, new ways of new statistical tests, new modules, new, new ways of thinking about uh, adaptive designs over the last 30 years. And, and that served us very, very well. However, uh, what's also interesting is that the world uh, has shifted. You know, 30 years ago, if you had said uh, cloud computing, uh, no one would have known what you meant. Um, and if even 10 years ago you'd said cloud computing to a pharmaceutical company, they would have said, uh, we're not sure, it's a little risky, it feels unsafe. So we have a software product that is the de facto standard for the industry when it comes to designing adaptive studies. But you know, for the last 30 years, it was on-premise, and it was kind of provided in a relatively uh, traditional way. However, now pharmaceutical companies are embracing uh, software as a service, they're embracing uh, cloud-distributed computing, 
Uh, there's actually uh, tech, the ways to use the technology, leverage cloud computing, et cetera, to do simulation at scale is also all uh, available to us. And so for us, we, and one of the theses that New Mountain Capital had coming in was that we could take the Cytel software, which is mature and very uh, well-regarded software product, but still, uh, but on a traditional platform, and that we could invest to bring it both to a more modern um, place with regards to things like uh, cloud computing and software as a service, but also invest to bring in new capabilities and, and how what those new capabilities look like, how we're applying these sorts of uh, analytic approaches. Uh, there's a variety of ways to do that. We're working on a couple of them right now, but clearly uh, there's a, a, a huge unmet demand in the industry to support uh, more advanced analytics through software. That is what we're doing. And a combination of moving it to a more modern basis, like software as a service, plus bringing more capabilities to bear uh, is how we're, we're trying to generate uh, new value. So how does this vision we were just talking about, the vision that New Mountain had coming in, align with the decision to merge with Axio Research, a company that also did biostatistical analysis? Well, so one of the um, neat parts about having uh, private equity support is the ability to think uh, both organically, inorganically when it comes to growth. And Axio is uh, widely regarded as, you know, if not the best, one of two uh, true experts in the field of data monitoring committees. And it's a, it's a specialized area, but one that's critical for clinical studies. And it's something that we at Cytel did some of, but we would never have said that we were you know, the industry leader in it. Um, it's possible that if we had decided to organically grow that area, really focus on it, really build out intellectual property and technologies, et cetera, that we could have become an industry leader, but it would have taken years. Whereas uh, Axio was at a point in its growth where uh, I think they were ready for a merger with us. Uh, certainly, we had the investment capital to support that. And critically, we had the uh, infrastructure that that was also a byproduct of the New Mountain Capital investment, whether it was financial systems, HR systems, uh, IT systems. We had the ability to bring on a company like Axio, or since Axio, we've acquired two other companies, um, our ability to uh, incorporate and support these companies to grow better together is also very much driven by our own uh, internal capabilities. So, um, so effectively, it's a way to grow faster and, and something that is enabled by the investment both in ourselves and the investment capital that New Mountain provided. So we were just talking about New Mountain Capital, your private equity partner. Tell us more about your experience partnering with a private capital provider. What has the process looked like and what does their investment really allow you to do? So um, my previous in my previous world, we were at, I, w- I worked at a company called Power Excel, which is a publicly traded company. And uh, the difference is night and day. Um, private equity and working with New Mountain in particular has been an exceptionally collaborative process. Um, the ability for us to think about longer term investment arcs, for example, the software, this is not a quarter by quarter sort of decision. You know, if we want to do what we want to do with the software, it's a multi-year investment. Um, and being able to talk to bright people who understand the industry very well and who we can really walk through in detail what we're doing, why we're doing it, what it's going to take, how long it's going to take, uh, and make decisions together is a completely different dynamic than what I experienced uh, in the public, in a public 
company. It's not that we weren't thinking long term. It's not that we weren't uh, thinking intelligently. Uh, but the 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 intimacy and the ability to really have those conversations directly with the owners uh, are are novel and and for me have uh, really been fantastic. It 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 is the I mean it's 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 cliche, but it is the benefit of private equity. Uh, the other thing that has been great is that they really, uh, you know, we are a relatively small investment in the New Mountain Capital portfolio. So the amount of, uh, of, of capital that we have available to us relative to our size is substantial, which really allows us to think broadly about what are the best ways to bring value to our clients and, and, and to our other stakeholders that are not constrained by, well, what do we have available to us today? What sort of loan can we take out today? You know, how could we lever ourselves up, for example? So all that has has been great. Um, in terms of challenges, um, I haven't. We, I mean, I haven't really experienced any yet. Uh, partly because uh, the Cytel experience so far has been um, has been you know, where it's working. It's working really well, and I think I might have a different perspective if it was uh, falling apart. Although even there, I would think it would be much more collaborative than what you'd see in a public situation where you've got you know activists and and short sellers and people who actually don't really care if the company does well. As a matter of fact, frankly, from their perspective, it might be better if the company doesn't do well. Uh, so in this case, uh, even if it was going badly, it probably would be better than in the public markets. Um, but one, one, one area that has transitioned a lot is the level of engagement from New Mountain has gone in the early days from being very intensive. You know, the company was um, relatively immature in its uh, development when we were acquired. Um, and we brought on additional management staff, additional systems, additional, you know, more mature approaches. And as we've been able to stand those up, the uh, the dynamic with New Mountain has shifted a lot from being kind of very operational and, 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 and intensive to being much more strategic and I think an appropriate level of engagement um, both for them and for us. So I, I would uh, maybe answer it that way. So stepping back and thinking about your perspective as a CEO, how would you advise another portfolio company thinking about weighing a potential valuation brought to them by a private equity firm versus the kind of partnership and relationship that you would expect to have with the firm? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, and one that I, uh, you know, thought I had a handle on and having now been through this process a little bit, I have a very different perspective. So uh, my my own uh, arc here, as I mentioned, I was at a company called Parkcell, which uh, the part of the reason that I am now at Cytel was that Parkcell went uh, went private and was brought private uh, by a, a private equity firm called Pamplona, right around the same time that Cytel was being acquired by New Mountain, and so the the combination of Pamplona um, acquiring Parkcell meant that my you know various. Um, uh, triggers occurred and it allowed me to then make a decision. Do I want to leave Park Cell or not? You know, all the you know things like options vesting and whatnot. And so I had a real interesting choice to make between Pamplona and Park Cell and Cytel and New Mountain Capital. And from my uh, naive perspective, it kind of felt like equal situations, right? You know, both are private equity backed and, you know, it's really then just a question about the company. What I didn't fully appreciate and what I would suggest other CEOs think through hard is what is the playbook that is about to be applied to the company? And I know it's not as simple as you know. There's you know playbook A versus playbook B, but in the case of Pamplona, the this, the very uh, and they they weren't they didn't make any um, uh, they weren't uh, uh, they weren't hiding it. You know the the, ex- the expectation is that they were going to and they did lever up the company, uh, like other CROs have has occurred to other CROs in the industry. Uh, the job was yes, growth was great, but really the the 
the way that money was going to be made was by growing at reasonable levels while paying down the debt over time and uh, improving, you know, and improving profitability. That that was the playbook for the Parkcell Pamplona dynamic. Whereas with Cytel, it was very different. There was no initial debt put on Cytel. Uh, we have we have and we will bring on more debt to acquire companies over time. But the playbook was all about growth. It was all about discontinuous growth. It was a belief that there were things that we could do that were going to uh, bring a lot more value to our clients and to Cytel. And so the expectations around growth were totally different than with uh, the Pamplona Park Cell example. And that has big implications for the management team, for how you think about it, for how, how you're managing day to day. And it's not to say one's better than the other. They're not. Um, but they are very different, and there's going to be certain uh, people and teams who who gravitate more towards one dynamic than to another. And if you don't have a good handle on what that playbook is and the implications of that playbook to your day-to-day operations, uh, you're you're not understanding the full picture. So I'd say that's one uh, major piece. The other one, which I know sounds uh, squishy, but it has been striking to me, is the relationship with the um, with the private equity team that is assigned to uh, to the company. I mean, the fact is you will be working with these folks uh, intimately. Uh, you know, I chat with uh, my, uh, the two people most involved uh, in the investment from New Mountain, Kyle and Matt. Uh, I deal with them multiple times a week. It's an exceptionally collaborative uh, experience. Uh, I like them both. You know, they're, they're, they're colleagues, right? We're working together. And if you uh, didn't like the people or if it felt like, uh, you know, order to, you know, you know, uh, master slave, or I don't know, there's a lot of dynamics I could imagine would be very challenging to work through. But in a world where it's, uh, it's friendly, collaborative, and, and, and with mutual respect, combined with a playbook that's aligned with what you thought you signed up for, I think it can be a very, very good relationship, which is uh, certainly what I've experienced. And what I think, uh, in the absence of those, it could be a very uh, challenging dynamic. When you look at the broader landscape of drug development and the industry overall, what do you think are the biggest challenges? Where do you think the industry is going? When I first got into this industry, someone told me an interesting story um, that I think encapsulates the answer to this. Uh, this individual said to me, do you know the only medal of, I think it was Medal of Honor, Medal of Valor, some, some high civilian honor that was ever given in the pharmaceutical industry? And it was given to, the, I think, the head of the FDA for not approving thalidomide right? I don't know if that story is true. I think it is probably true. Uh, But it speaks to what our industry uh, has as a challenge, which is a tremendous risk aversion. No one wants to be the next thalidomide. No one even wants to be the next Vioxx, right? Uh, You know, there are um, very substantial implications to getting it wrong, not just financial, but uh, human costs. And uh, because of that, people want to be very careful. People want to be very risk averse. And unfortunately, that means that there are lots of, um, whether it's technologies or approaches that are have been used for decades in other industries that are only now making their way to the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, uh, things as simple as strategic partnerships between vendors and suppliers, you know, hit our, our industry 10 years ago, whereas it hit every other industry probably 30 or 20 years ago. So uh, the amount of work that we have to do is huge. Uh, I think there's a lot more uh, use we can make of technology um, to uh, both design better studies and to execute them. I think there's a lot we can do in terms of vendor uh, management principles that are still pretty old school. I think there's a lot that can be done around um, the 
the culture within pharma, which is, you know, on one hand, it's great because it's very collaborative. On the other hand, it's uh, uh, bureaucratic, slow moving and too consensus driven. So, you know, is there more to do? Yeah, there's a ton to do. Um, you know, the good news is we have uh, a lot, lots of, there's a, a huge amount of science that, you know, we're understanding the basic biology of diseases in ways that we never did before. The tools we have at our disposal are unprecedented. And so when you combine the, that, the science and, the, and the, the advances happening there with more of the business or operating model sorts of advances, I have no doubt that we'll continue to deliver great value to patients and physicians and, and the world. But um, anyone who's been involved in this industry for 10 minutes, much less 25 years, knows that nothing changes fast and that the amount of effort it takes to move us what feels like a relatively modest step forward uh, is, is, is huge. So, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Actually, honestly, it kind of makes it fun, uh, because there's a lot to do. It's not a perfectly efficient market. Uh, at the same time, it can be frustrating, uh, to say the least. So we've talked about private equity, we've talked about drug development, but what role do you think private equity can play in improving drug development overall? And how do you think private equity can invest in drug development in a way that's sustainable and ethical? Right. So the good news about um, is this space is that almost anything you do, particularly on the R&D side, but even one could argue on the sales and marketing side, but particularly on the R&D side, almost anything we do here is kind of ethical and sustainable, right? It's all of, all of the good sort of social um, responsibility factors, I think, are hit when, you, when we deal in this world. It's one of the reasons many of us come to work every day. It, is it feels like a, you know, we can do good by doing well or do well by doing good or whatever you want to call it. Um, with regards to to investing, though, in this space, it kind of goes back a little bit to what I was talking about before. You know, if you want to distinguish two major modes of advancement uh, in this area, one of them is the science and one of them is the operating models. So science, I don't actually have a lot to do with in terms of investing, but obviously there's a whole investing world out there focused on picking molecules, picking platforms that are next generation uh, drug candidate creators, right? And that's, that's great. Uh, I don't like, I don't, I don't personally get that involved in that, but clearly that's an area where private equity and venture capital have been very active. And one could actually argue that the single biggest driver of innovation right now is that, you know, the fact is most of the big drugs on the market right now weren't created by big pharma companies. They were created in biotechs and labs that were then acquired by pharma over time and then commercialized by pharma. I don't see any reason that's going to change and private equity and venture capital are a big uh, driver of that, and as should happen. But there's the other piece, which maybe has had less innovation, or not less innovation, but private equity has been involved, but maybe not as as uh, robustly as they could be. Which is on more on the side that I'm in, where you know it's it's the operating models, it's the outsourcing approaches, it's the technologies that help to run trials better, help to identify patients better, help to design trials better, help to do all the things that answer the research questions in an efficient way that allows the science to be brought to market. There's been a lot of VC there. There's been a lot of uh, money invested in things like big CROs, but it feels like there's probably more that could be done. And and certainly Cytel is a good example of that. You know, there's companies out there like Cytel that are great science forward organizations, but that need support and are benefiting from support from more uh, mature uh, financial sponsors. So, you know, I, I think finding those right companies, combining them in interesting ways, doing all the things that that private equity, I think, has done successfully in other industries and to an extent in this one, I think there's actually quite a bit of opportunity there and, and quite a bit of uh, interesting future um, advancement. So that brings us to our last topic. 
I think I'd be remiss if I talked to you about drug development in this moment and we didn't talk about the coronavirus crisis. I know Cytel has been doing a lot to respond. Can you tell me more about the clinical trial tracker that Cytel has released? Sure. So um, this is, you know, one of the great parts about being in this field is that we have brilliant people who uh, saw a need and, and honestly, without asking permission, just went and built this thing. And obviously, once we saw it, we were like, yeah, this is great. How can we help do even more of it? Um, and so in this case, the the trial tracker, um, you know, just it, it, it identifies and and uh, aggregates all the different trials that are running out there, which is important in a rapidly moving situation like we have with COVID, where uh, the number of patients that need to be recruited to support all whatever is 545 studies or whatever it was last time I checked um, is huge. Uh, not all the studies are equally valid. Not all the studies uh, um, make as much sense. And so finding some way to understand what the landscape looks like and how we can as a society, most effectively use our resources to, to find solutions for this, treatments, vaccines, whatever, uh, is something that this, uh, we believe, can help, and which is, which is pretty exciting. I think more generally with COVID, there's a, um, there's a lot of opportunities in, our, in, our, um, uh, in the future, not, not just the, actually back to my science versus operating models. You know, the science, of course, there's a ton of, of interesting in, uh, science that's now coming to bear in, in terms of how to combat COVID, but there's also this this whole experience has uh, made more visible the need for uh, abilities to run trials in a more flexible way, whether it's the statistics around things like missing visit windows, whether it's the ability to do remote studies where patients don't have to go to the doctor as often or maybe ever, uh, the ability to collect data remotely. Um, all of those things are in the industry, but none of those are fully expressed and when something like COVID comes along, it catalyzes thinking that otherwise was evolving quite slowly. And now pharma companies see, okay, this is actually, I can see when this would be very valuable. Let me kind of get over whatever institutional inertia might be there to actually do a pilot to push this forward faster than it otherwise would have. So I believe there's going to be a fair amount of, whether it's sightless trials or home health uh, uh, support for trials or statistical approaches that will that would have happened anyway, but are going to happen a lot faster because something like uh, COVID will catalyze that action. So you've touched on this, but thinking more broadly about COVID, Cytel, and the industry at large, what other ways do you see Cytel responding, and how will the industry adapt to respond to COVID? Sure. So I mean, Cytel, we we have the benefit of uh, you know we're we're uh, advanced analytics are exactly what you need in a situation like this, both to design studies for COVID that uh, can be done very, very quickly. Um, you know, we, 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 have, we don't have the luxury of time for a variety of reasons. So using things like Bayesian borrowing to uh, use uh, to, to create uh, answers that are, are statistically robust, but that might be a little different than what the FDA is used to looking at. Um, but in addition to COVID studies, there's also all the studies that have been impacted by COVID, right? So for us to help create... Um, uh, uh, statistical approaches that allow for missing data or out-of-window treatment uh, data. These are all things that we also are able to help with. Uh, so both the designing the studies and then executing those is something all of which we do. But then uh, larger or more kind of forward-looking, I do think things like sightless studies will will uh, are already out there but will become more relevant. And in those situations, the ability to design the studies with 
uh, those approaches in mind, I think, is uh, very valuable. I think the use of, uh, you know, a part of sightless studies, for example, might be using mobile devices, whether it's your phone, Fitbit type things or whatever, to collect data. But now when you're starting to collect data, not just, you know, once every six weeks, but when you're collecting terabytes of data that are, you know, taking your pulse every minute, every whatever, over weeks and weeks, the amount of data you can collect is huge. And finding the analytic methods to make sense out of all that data and really derive value is a whole another level that our industry has only begun to grapple with. So this is another area where I think, um, while COVID is not mobile health, the fact that COVID COVID could very well generate sightless studies and the use of more mobile health uh, in those sightless studies is a kind of one of those weird um, uh, implications that might very well come out of this process and actually would be good for the industry if it did. Josh, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Shruti. All right, everyone, that's it for today. In today's episode, we talked to Josh about pharmaceutical development a topic that's increasingly relevant as the world races to find a vaccine for COVID-19. One of the things that struck me about this conversation is the relatively conservative approach that the industry has had. It makes sense. The stakes are high, and the cost of releasing unsafe and untested drugs into the marketplace is unacceptable. I love that Cytel doesn't seek to make drug development better just by making it faster or by compromising safety. Instead, Cytel uses new statistical approaches and tools we already have, but in new ways. That's the kind of innovation and thinking we need to respond to the public health crisis we find ourselves in today. Join us next time, where we continue our focus in healthcare. I'll be talking to the Chief of Strategy at Signify Health, a company that wants to bring doctors and nurses directly into your living room. I'm your host, Shruti Rao, and this is Counting on Capital.